you're listening to this Choir Nerd Podcast, where I blabber on about music things, mostly. I'm your host, Mark Davin. Welcome to another episode from this Choir Nerd If you listened to the last episode about starting professional choral groups, you might remember that I said I would dedicate an entire episode to that. That was my intention, but it turned into an interesting conversation about the ins and outs of the professional choral world, rather than a how to start a professional choir for dummies. We give some tips on how to start one, but I think the tangential conversation was even more interesting. We did this over two bottles of rosé. I'm so grateful to have had both Doug Fullington and Scott Kovacs on the podcast. So, without further delay, I bring you our conversation on the ins and outs of professional choral singing. Scott Kovacs and Doug Fullington, thank you all for being on this podcast. Hey, Mark. Um, Before we get into it, I think it probably makes sense for the three people listening to this, uh, for you all to talk about a little bit about yourself and and about where you come from in the music scene and um, any other kind of interesting information you think we'd like to know. Maybe start with you, Doug. Uh, Right. I had music in my background my whole life. Mm-hmm. Went to a Lutheran school as a kid, so we learned liturgical music, Lutheran Book of Worship. High school had a strong choir. Uh, majored in music at University of Washington. Started in piano, went to music history. Uh, got some recordings of English choirs that really influenced me. Made me want to start my own group. Cool. And you, Scott? Uh, like Doug, I grew up in music. I uh, started studying uh, piano and voice when I was uh, very young, six years old, and uh, knew by the time I was in high school that I wanted to uh, choose music as my profession. And I became a professional music educator and professional choral musician uh, uh, through Arizona State University and Northern Arizona University, uh, where I studied both opera and choral music and organ. That would be three, not both. Uh, and then uh, later on moved into a career as a music educator teaching uh, choral music in the junior high school and also had a professional choral career uh, with what was then the Phoenix Bach Choir and is now the Phoenix Chorale and have continued my, uh, my career ever since. Thanks for all that. My last episode was all about encouraging people to start professional choirs. So uh, I sort of promised that I'd talk about how to do that. I figure through the area, the topics that that we sort of have outlined that will kind of cover a lot of other sort of tangential things. It's great to have you here, uh, Scott, because I know that you uh, are now involved with Gary's new venture. um, I'm the the executive director of the newly formed Emerald Ensemble. Yeah, and um, that that is just getting up and going, so this this might be, uh, it'll be interesting to hear about uh, what what sort of steps you're taking in, in getting in getting yourselves off the ground. And uh, it's also worth mentioning that Doug's work with the Tudor Choir um, is, I, I think, is a, for me, a, a huge success story. And, and I think also worth noting that your decision to suspend the Tudor Choir subscription series wasn't financially motivated or, or anything. It was it was it was for other reasons. Do you want to say a few things about that? Oh yeah, really time motivated. I got a, I do a lot of work in dance history, and I have a lot of opportunities coming up in that. And it's just a matter of trying to balance time. And I also felt that the people that sang for me on the whole have lots of gigs going, which is right. great. I mean, right. Thanks in large part to you as mm. well as you know others. And so it's nice to know that you know it's not the one and only thing for those people. There's a lot of <coughs> diversification for them. So, you know, feel okay about it. Why would you want to form a professional choir? What sort of advantages there are? Well, when does it make sense to do that? Um, I wanted people to show up. Show yeah. up on time, every time, and I wanted to be selective. Yeah. 
Yeah. Showing up is a big thing. Yeah. Pay them, they come. Sick, yes. not sick, they're there. They got to be there. Mm-hmm. That is a huge, uh, especially when you're not, when you don't have a ton of singers, you know, that you're employing. It, every every person counts. Yeah. Scott, have you have you? What do you think? I had a kind of a different tack. I, I certainly agree with Doug. I think I think that the professionalism of a professional choir makes a, a huge difference in the quality and uh, the ability uh, of the choir to uh, perform. But I think I think for me that there's a that philosophically it's good for the art form. Professional choirs are good for choral music. Mm-hmm. Uh, they advance the art form. It supports professionals that are doing other work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it allows them to do other kinds of work that are not paid or that are differently paid. Right. Uh, and it's good for a community both intellectually and economically. I think the most recent Arts Fund study that came out about both King County and Seattle showed the real impact of what, uh, what the arts are doing in our region. And, and professional ensembles are a major contributor to both the intellectual and economic impact in, in the area. They're, they're good for audiences. Professional ensembles are good for audiences too, uh, because it, it, it raises their awareness and it raises uh, their um, it, it increases their knowledge about the art form. Mm-hmm. Uh, because professional choirs can bring a product that community choirs or semi-professional ensembles may not be able to bring. So you would, pro- <coughs> excuse me, I, it's because we're drinking already, we're drinking this yeah. very pale rosé, and I some of it went down the wrong pipe this kind of community benefit, this artistic benefit, is sort of a prime, the, the primary reason why you would want to start a paid choir. Yep. I mean, I, I would say more so than, you know, simply, you know, wanting to make, sort of having your, your pick of the litter, as it were, and, and being able to, you know, get precisely who you want. Uh, oh, and, I, yeah. I think that's certainly a motivation. Uh, you know, I, as I said, I completely agree with Doug. I mean, being able to handpick 16 singers that you really want to work with, yeah. pay them, and make really great music at yeah. a professional level, oh my gosh, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the cherry. I mean, that's really what, it's, what, what makes it work well for an artistic director or for, or for the community of singers that you bring together. It's an opportunity to work together at a very, very high level. Right, right. So Scott, I, I, know, I know sort of more about Doug, which we'll get to in a second, but have you started a, a professional group before? Yeah, I was involved uh, many, many years ago with the, what, what was then the, the Phoenix Bach and Madrigal Society, and on, back then it was under the direction of Anders Orval, uh, and it transitioned uh, with John, the addition of John Washburn to the artistic staff to something called the Phoenix uh, Bach Choir, and that was its transition year into... Uh, professional status. So it actually went from being a group of people that sang around somebody's piano in a living room to, uh, and, and, and sang a couple of concerts a year to a professional, to a professional, not even a professional core, but a professional choir. And uh, about 20 years later, with not even 20, more like 15 or 16 years later with Charles Bruffy, it then evolved into the Phoenix Chorale. Mm-hmm. And I was present through much of those, much of those transitions. I wasn't there <clears throat> when they became Phoenix Chorale, but I was there when when they started out as a professional chorus. So I've, mm-hmm. I've witnessed this, and I've witnessed the sort of growing pains at a, at a particular point that, um, uh, that come from transition. And so how did you start paying the singers? Well, uh, at the time, it was a decision by the board. Uh, and the board was responsible for uh, coming up with the terms that, um, uh, that would define pay scale and would define how often, and was it per service, was it by hour, what was it going to look like? And then ultimately, you know, funding that. Uh, so it was, uh, it's, it's very different than just starting a professional, well, maybe it isn't different than just starting a professional choir, but starting from a previous animal, also, you're, in, in the case of the Phoenix Bach and Madrigal Society, they knew they also had to change their branding. Right. Because the choir was changing philosophically. Uh-huh. Uh, so branding became part of the issue, too. And, and there are a lot of costs, and there are a lot of cultural changes associated with that. Um, you run the risk of uh, alienating singers that you choose or, uh, not to continue in the professional status. Do you, I mean, which singers do you retain? Which do you not retain? Uh, which singers do you, um, if you're going to do a professional core, for example, like some, some choirs when they, when they move to a professional status will start out by having what, 
might be called by Chorus America a semi-professional core uh-huh. or a professional core chorus. Sure. And you pay, you know, eight or twelve of your singers, and then the rest are volunteer. Which twelve do you pick, and yeah. what does that do to the morale of the non-paid singers? Those are all considerations in transition. So, was there some kind of re-audition process? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, Doug, you want to talk about a little bit about how Tudor Choir kind of made that move and transition? Yeah, I mean, I got to say from the outside, I totally come from the outside. I don't come from choral, you know, official choral music training. I don't, I don't come from any of that. I really probably don't come from the philosophy of it either. I just sort of yeah. did what I wanted to do. Yeah. I um, you know, I had these recordings of early English music that I liked, and I wanted to put a choir together to do some stuff. So I did that like in '88 called it the English Singers. Mm -hmm. It was a two-year commitment. It wasn't paid. It was like people from, there were some people from my church, some people from my high school, college. I mean, it was just people that I knew made a sound I liked, and they agreed to do it, and we did it, and then that was done. Then I joined the Compline Choir in like September of 91, because they were doing Speminolium, and they needed some people, and I found out about it through UW School of Music. And then David Stutz was in there, and I got together a group of people to do one of those post-compliment recitals of music by John Shepard. Uh-huh. And then, then afterwards, Stutz said, well, you should, you, know, you should incorporate and form a choir. And so thought about it and did it. And we weren't paid at first for our own concerts that we presented. When we had outside gigs that we were hired for, those were paid. Uh-huh. That was sort of how we started, because we didn't have any money to pay anybody at first. Uh-huh. It, was just, you know, it was ticket sales, and that was it. So you got the nonprofit going, got, you know, did a series for a couple of years. And I can't remember what year we started paying people for concerts. Might have been around 95, 94, 95. Mm-hmm. And do you remember how much that, that the opening? I'd, I'd have to look. It wasn't per service or uh-huh. per hour. It was just per gig. And I know we rehearsed more uh-huh. than we ended up rehearsing a lot later. Yeah. So you just sort of rehearsed. As much as you need to do to be ready. And also, you know, I was learning, too, and learning how to, you know, prepare people and how to comment in rehearsal to try and get the right sound. Right. And then it eventually, you know, we maybe it was like 200 bucks a gig. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that was probably roughly like four or five-plus rehearsals and then two concerts, or...? Yeah, probably one concert at first when we were just at St. Mark's, and then sometimes it would be two if we go to the east side. It just sort of depended. You know, you'd always try mm-hmm. and piggyback something on so you get more bang for your buck. So you never had a design where you, and, and this is me speaking from my own experience with at least the way Vox 16 is starting up. We're sort of just splitting ticket revenues basically right now. Did you have some upfront donors to sort of help cushion that initial risk, yeah. financial risk, or... I think we had a few donors, but not very much. Uh-huh. We just sort of gauged by what we were making off those early concerts mm-hmm. and figured, okay, this is enough this to is pay X number of people, yeah. and that's what we're going to pay them. Yeah. And so we tell them, it was a flat fee, you're going to be paid X mm-hmm. for this. And then, you know, after I had done some of my own gigs, like saw a sample of like a Talis Scholar contract, yeah. saw, yeah. okay, how's that laid out? <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. did all my contracts that way. Uh-huh. You know, like, okay, this is it. This is how the info is given out to the singers. This is what you're being paid. And Yeah. Yeah. So it just sort of went along. It was very, very important to me to pay singers. I also had a full-time job. I wasn't looking to get, like, dues or be supported. Yeah, you know, yeah. I wanted to pay people so that they yeah. would produce. Yeah. And they would show up. Yeah. And, I, uh... I think it's worth noting that when you take this avenue of paying your singers, you there's not really much left for the director. It's just a, a little bit of a financial sacrifice. Yeah, you have to from decide that what. Well, yeah, and it's going to be different for every person. I wasn't in a position where I, ha- I had to get paid. I mean, I usually paid yeah. myself two singer fees. Yeah. That's what I got paid. Right. And that was all the way through. Yeah. Like two singer fees, for, you know, running. Well, the yeah, concert, of course. Administering the thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and also once you commit to it, you've got to commit to it, whether it's a concert that doesn't make anything, <laughs> loses uh-huh. money, or a concert that makes money, mm-hmm. you know, so. So you, you said earlier that, that your main sort of impetus to paying people was so they would just show up. Well, that was the first <laughs> or thing. Or people not coming to rehearsals. Yeah, or like, so, yeah. Well, I couldn't come because I had this. Or, I mean, you, wanna, you want to give them an incentive to make it a priority. Yeah. You want to give them an incentive to work on their voice. Yeah. And to produce. Yeah you know, certain sound, and also to come in, like, have music, open the mouth, and sing it. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, I know that one of, one of the things that Gary and I have, have are, are adamant about in preparations for Emerald Ensemble is that our singers walk in notes learned. And yeah. it's much easier to do that when you have professional singers. We're limiting the number of rehearsals to mm-hmm. uh, a very few for each concert set, partly to keep costs down. Yeah. Uh, but also because we know that the singers that we're basically handpicking are capable of learning their notes before they walk into rehearsal. Right. And we can start at a very high level of musicianship right away. Sure. And that's that's another reason to, as, as Doug aptly put, is to incentivize the, the singers with. And rehearsal, rehearsing is so boring, don't you think? Oh, uh, well, you know, it can yeah. be. <laughs> I also want to say, I think it's better if they can come in and read it. Yes. On the spot. You know, I mean, I had some singers who would want the music in advance, and that's great. And I probably would be one of those people, too. Yeah, yeah. Because I like to look at it. But I love the people that come in and just pick it up and do it. Yeah, sight reading. When, when I auditioned for Vox 16, we ignored the sight reading component. But I think I'm re- realizing is that people are lazy. If it takes them hours and hours to learn something, even if they can, they often don't. Getting someone who can read really quickly seems to be an important thing, even though, you know, you don't sight read a concert. Um, but the, that that skill seems to play a big role uh, in sort of how it turns out. I can't remember a choir that I've auditioned for that I haven't had to do a sight singing test for. Interesting. Um, I think it's it's an integral component to musical skill, and mm-hmm. I think that you know uh, in a in a previous uh, uh, incarnation I, I sang with a certain 21st and 20th century music group. Yeah. And the first thing you end up with is uh, a score that is uh, atonal. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be able to know you have to know your intervals. Yeah. I mean, you have to know your intervals. Totally do. Yeah. So uh, you know, being able to sing intervolically and and accurately to rhythm uh, at the same time is is a is a pretty critical skill. And and I'm I'm really grateful that I'm able to be one of those people that can sit down and read a score. Yeah. Uh, relatively accurately, but. Um, uh, I still like to look at my music before I walk in if I have the opportunity. It, it just gives me a little bit more familiarity. And uh, uh, but absolutely, sight singing is—it's cr- you know at the professional level. I think sometimes we assume that because somebody's a professional, they can sight sing, hmm. and that's not always true. But we should be able to presume that, and that's a big problem. Yeah. And it's also what gives singers the stigma that they're stupid and can't mm-hmm. read music. Mm-hmm. And I—that was one I wanted to get rid of that yeah at least with regard to myself and anyone around me to be totally honest totally you know the dumb singer who can't read music part of that has to be because in college you know when you're being prepared as a singer you're being prepared as an opera singer and i don't think sight singing is is important there i don't think this this kind of level of musicianship is um emphasized Uh, i'll share with you i went through a general music education program, and so sight singing and dictation, melodic dictation and harmonic dictation were part of my freshman year. I I work as an assistant for a relatively well-known area conductor, and I was doing some uh, editing for him, uh, some proofreading of a score, and he said, you know, I don't feel comfortable with you doing this work until you've taken a dictation test for me and and a sight singing test. So right there in his living room, I had to take a Mm. a melodic dictation. I had to write out a four-part Bach chorale. First time I've done it since college. Yeah. (laughs) I was really glad that I I had the ability to listen to a four-part Bach chorale, and on the third hearing, I had most everything except a couple of odd inversions. But but I think that those skills, whether or not they're being taught now, are critical to good musicianship later in life. Yeah. For me, uh, the importance of paying singers is just when you, when you find someone you really like and you want to be able to use that person all the time, you've got you to gotta front some money. I've been a little bit vocal recently about this, but this is very much something that, that I just want to credit Doug for being outspoken on earlier. My growing up through Tutor Choir, I remember you talking about this a lot, but I think also by having more paid groups, we can maybe encourage other singers to, to focus on the right skills, you know, to improve their own voices and their own musicianship. Anything either of you would like to add to this before we, we move on? Well, the transitioning to a paid choir, and you touched on this more eloquently than I can, (laughs) but I mean, it's not just, we're now going to give you a paycheck. I mean, stuff has to change. Mm -hmm. You know, people have to, like you said, they have to show up, they have to sing, and they have to sing to a standard. Yeah. Um, You know, I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about picking singers, but Mm -hmm. you have to sing to a standard that matches the standard that the professional music world deems fit to compensate for. Yeah. As I end that sentence with a preposition. <laughs> so it mean, it does mean some people are going to go 
And so now it comes down to, okay, what's the function of the choir? Why are the people there? How do you choose people? Yeah. I know this is where we're headed with the conversation, but these yeah. are these are tough questions. And, uh, you know, they go to motivation and what you want to get out of it, what you want your product to be. Right. So, I mean, it's just magic doesn't happen just because there's money. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, you have to also execute and deliver yeah, uh, the singers do. Once you throw money into the equation, there's going to be the role of the conductor and the singer, I think, becomes different than in a community choir. And I think the way forward is very much like, and this sounds so dispassionate, boss and employees. And this is virtually impossible to have the director not be friends with all the other singers because singing together is very much a, a bonding experience. But I think once you enter that realm of paying people, you enter in this relationship division of, you know, boss and, and I guess I, I want to bounce that your direction and, and, and see what your thoughts are about this. Well, I really hadn't looked at it from that perspective um, because it's usually the executive. Often, in most of my experiences, the executive director and the artistic director have been different people. And so my, I always thought of my boss as the artistic director, as the executive director. and mm -hmm. my, artistic director is sort of my my leader in rehearsal it, it, they're still responsible for monitoring the the uh, professional standard of, of, of the singer uh, I think also I, I think what it comes down to for me is the collegiality aspect um, uh, I think that it's hard when we have to fire a friend or, yeah and it's a joyful experience when we get to hire a friend mm -hmm. um, uh, because we create communities, uh, you, you can't you can't sing together without breathing and and living together in that musical space for a while, mm. and it, it creates a bond. And um, and I think that that supersedes uh, professional status. Uh, I mean, there are there are amateur singers that I've worked with that I feel very very close to, but have had to separate relationships from. Mm -hmm. And I, it's hard too. In a way, for me. It almost seems easier that when it's a professional situation, okay, there are certain standards that aren't being met. We haven't met these benchmarks, and therefore, uh, we have to we have to look for someone else for this particular chair. Yeah. Um, and I'm just supposing with that. I don't know, Doug. Maybe you have a better perspective on it than I do. I mean, Tudor Choir was always a very small organization. We had several people in the role of manager for a number of years, but then just got to a point where. It, we could streamline the administration way, way down. Yep. So we could focus one on fees, focus on, you know, doing most things via internet and so yes. forth. Yeah, I sort of have the boss and employee mentality in a way, as far as the hiring and all. I mm -hmm. mean, I do the hiring, I pay people, I give them their checks. I mean, it's it's a business deal. They show up on time, they're there. Yeah. But I'm more interested in the role of the conductor artistically. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I mean, can we go there? Yeah, we absolutely. Take in, us there. Well, for me, I would like to have thought it was very much a peer situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes I flex my muscles like I'm the one in charge. I mean, because someone ha the buck stops with the conductor. But my view is the conductor, at least in a small group like we had, is very much a facilitator, trying to facilitate the best singing out of these people. Right. Okay. Yeah, you've got to give direction. You've got to give some parameters because everyone has to come together at some point. Yeah. But, I mean, I was in a room of peers. I mean, people would not hesitate to say, if we do it that way, it's going to sound like shit. And they'll just say that right out in the rehearsal. I mean, you know, Stutz yeah. has said that before. Yeah, yeah if you do it yeah. that way. Strong and, personalities. And I really love that because I don't want a bunch of wimpy people out there singing. I want people who are going to make noise, yeah. people who are going to make decisions, people who are going to offer things. Right, right. You know, you want people with spirit and opinions and I loved that. Yeah, that's, that is not the way, um, from my experience, a lot of choral groups work. I think a lot of them have a weird social structure where we have a director who is kind of like a demigod or something, yeah. and you have these singers that are singing to them. You know, they're staring in their eyes. Well, sometimes God, people try to... I've yeah. had that hero it's worship, but yeah, it's so it's horrifying. You're saying yeah. their concert, like, what are you doing? Yeah, it's like, yeah. don't look Connect at me. The people behind me, me have yeah. paid money. Yeah. Yeah. You have to deliver. <laughs> don't worry about me. I'm just standing here. I, I think there's a, a couple of phenomena. I, I once had a choral director who stood up in front of the choir and said, this is not a democracy, and you mm -hmm. are not in charge. Mm -hmm. And I think... <laughs> and I just thought, well, um, uh, yeah, okay, you're, you're nothing without the choir that's standing in front of you, so, I mean, you have no vehicle without us. 
but that's, that's something else altogether. I think at the professional level, what you end up with is a room full of experts. Mm -hmm. you're, sharing, you're sharing artistic space with a room full of experts who are in many ways your collaborators. And I think Doug's use of the word facilitator is really apt. Yeah. I think that an artistic director still has to have enough personality to be in charge. I mean, it takes ego to stand in front of 16 or 24 or 50 people and focus that energy and focus that attention on a musical product. Someone has to be responsible for the musical product. And, yeah. Um, and and Doug, Doug really described that very, very clearly. But I, one of the reasons I like working at a professional level is because I'm sitting around with people who are either as expert or more expert than I am. And you, you just hear some really, really great things, both uh, musically and intellectually, from passing comments or from from helpful ideas. Now that can get out of hand. I was uh, just gonna go there. Like it, yeah, it, it, it can it, get out of hand. I think most of the time when people say stuff, I, I'm thinking, why did you say that? And then I start judging them because that's not what's in my brain. How did that arrive in your brain? I totally uh, understand that there's value in all the singers and the expertise they bring. But uh, in, in occasions, it can be, I guess there's like a, just a line where that is, you know. There, it could be disruptive, you know. There's a lot of, you know, chatty well, Cathy's out there. There's a point at which our vulnerability and our authority overlap, and somewhere in that Venn diagram of vulnerability and authority mm -hmm. is some really wise kind of artistic approach from the podium. Yeah. I know I have to set my ego aside every now and then, you know, when, when my jazz expert in my choir looks at me and goes, no, beat four is late. It's, it's late every time, and I'm like, all right, I have to let go of the fact that I'm supposed to be the person making this observation right now, uh -huh. and that someone with, with more with more Someone that you trust yeah, is yeah. making that call. Yeah. 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 No, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I just want to say, if any of my colleagues are listening, <laughs> I did sometimes <laughs> abuse the fact that I was the person in charge, but I mean, you try not to, and uh, I really do believe in the, the sort of peer approach. And yeah, you have to exhibit leadership because people have agreed to be there. And I think also as a singer, you have to realize, okay, this conductor, this director likes things a certain way. I mean, I have certain pronunciation things I really like, mm -hmm. and it's not the way these people would choose to do it, but they're in this situation, so they do it. And I really appreciate that. You have to be that way. You have yeah. to just decide to be malleable. And if you just can't hack it, you can't take that gig. Yeah. You just have to decide, yeah, that's not can't sing for you or something. Yeah, yeah, right, right, Which right. Which is, I totally respect. Yeah, yeah, good. I think at this point I'd, li I'd like to jump around a little bit and maybe to number eight um, about how we go about choosing singers. Mm. And and uh, it's probably some nice juicy, juicy things to talk about here. But uh, what do we value in a singer? Is there an objective reality? Well, we all sort of agree that, you know, some singers are the the ones to get. This is a really interesting discussion because uh, Gary Gary Cannon, who's going to who's the artistic director of Emerald Ensemble, and I have sort of toyed with the idea of are we going to audition, or are we going to handpick, and and uh, and as it turns out, Gary and I both have this list of people in our head that that we know we would either like to work with or that we have worked with that we liked working with that are both professional and collegial. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we know we could put uh, a community of, of singers together very quickly and, and, uh, and come up with an artistic group that, um, that, will, that will perform well and that will perform the music beautifully and at an expert level. Uh, so um, I think it's a combination of, uh, uh, I was just going to say uniqueness, nerve, and talent, but that's another show. I know that show. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but it's 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 more about uh, the you combination charisma. Yeah, charisma. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it is an anagram. <laughs> oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to delete that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, for us, it 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 really is knowing uh, its experience. It's, mm -hmm. it's working with experienced people with the ability to create the product and work well together. What about the what about the sound that's coming out of their mouth? Oh well, I mean, I I, I would say that that's a given, but mm -hmm. I mean, we know. I mean, knowing the voices that you're recruiting is, is is important. I mean, having having worked with 
many of them before we know their voices. When we started, there, you know, I was, like I said, I sort of ch- chose from all over. Uh-huh. I mean, it was like 1988. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, who, who, who's willing, who can. I mean, it's now it's a completely different story. I mean, mm-hmm. there's always the, the relationship and, and uh, sort of grandfathering or longevity or friendship issue. Those are hard. Those are really hard. You may develop over time and realize that one of your initial singers is not developing at the rate of the others mm-hmm. and then your product is compromised yeah. and, I mean it's hard yeah I mean now if you you know like we put together a list we talked the other day about mm-hmm. uh, a selection of people for a project and you know you names come to mind yeah. and you know yeah. who's going to function and who's who's uh, you know right on it and and able to produce sound makes a huge difference to me because there are some people who are good readers and all and they just make a sound i don't i'm not i'm not interested yeah. in yeah you know i always go back to stephen cleaver the right notes in tune at the right time yeah I mean, right it's like your fundamental it sounds so boring but and then that's really is there clarity is there ease of production uh-huh i mean can they produce a consistent sound across all the vowels throughout the range and can they can they initiate a firm sound immediately on the beat? Mm-hmm. You know, are they do they have vocal ease? Are yeah. they you know, are they singing in a healthy way? Yeah. I mean, those are absolutely those are primary. Yeah. 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 And I, then is that coupled with the skills required to to function in the timeline yeah. and at the level that, that we need? In evaluating a singer, I very much think of them sort of functioning in two Dimensions. There's there's an aspect of the, just their instrument, their pure, their voice, their natural talent, and then their um, sort of musical ability, their technical, um, their technical abilities, and uh, um, those don't always. Uh, sometimes you have to, you know, give. You know, you have to sacrifice a little bit for the other. You know, because I think people with good voices. Um, I think they cost money. I think they, yeah. they're the people you really want um, paying for. And I think, you know, you, you kind of take, sometimes you'll take a risk, being like, okay, well, hopefully they'll, they'll catch on and they'll improve their tuning. They'll be able to read music better. And you just kind of, there's a little give and take, I think, with that. Because the sound is so good. The sound is so good. The eternal we'll, optimist. Yeah. yeah. Right. We'll <laughs> learn it. They will improve. Because they sound amazing. Yeah. There's, there's a third level, I think, and, and Doug really hit it with, with, with the idea of the sound. And, and I think there's sort of a capstone to that, and that's the ability to sing in multiple styles. Unless you're a specialty choir that and, and you, you're cultivating a specific sound, even still you want someone who's able to work within that, within that specific uh, color. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know that with, for example, with the Emerald Ensemble, we're looking at, a, and I think you do too with Vox, with Vox 16, it's, it's a pretty wide-ranging kind of set of styles. So the ability to go uh, to sing Bach on one concert, Bach well, to sing Baroque with appropriate color yeah. and phrasing, and because you, you want people who can sing the intimacy of that line without too much coaching uh, and, and be able to change the color entirely when we move on to the Brahms Liebes leader. Yeah. Um, and to have that sort of facility to, to change color um, or, or to restaff your choir with different singers who are, are more capable for, for uh, a different project depending on, on, on what you want. I think that's a nice segue to, to one of the topics here is whether or not you know specialization is important and if it's okay that we jump right into that from where we were. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that you know that Vox 16. I've just been thinking recently about how I, how I, I, th- I think we need to specialize, and and I think that um, in the long term I, I find it easier to sell you know a sort of a, it's just a clearer product that you're selling if you're specializing, and I guess I'm hearing so far that the Emerald Ensemble plans to not specialize, and I'm curious as to how that decision was made and and more about that. Well, it was an interesting discussion, and I think that one of the things that I'm learning is that choirs that specialize generally have an artistic director that have a niche that they're in preference to. I mean, I'm sitting across from uh, a perfect example of somebody who really, really understands uh, a very specific genre of music because he has a passion for it and a love for it. And uh, and uh, in, in, in Gary's case, in the Emerald Ensemble's case, if we were going to specialize, it would probably be in English... In English choral music, William Walton. William Walton. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's 
That's really Gary's. That's a great idea. Yeah, a Walton we love player. him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we do love him. I mean, I, I, I could sing Walton and Elgar and Vaughn Williams. Gary, if you're listening, <laughs> change the focus right now. I'm just kidding. I mean, I, I could, and, and in fact, what we have done is in we've sort of redirected the first season uh, to include an English concert because of Gary's level of expertise with that. We want to play to Gary's expertise with the choir and give him a chance to sort of um, showcase that. I would think that's very marketable. It is very marketable. Because that's Gary's area. People are going to come to hear a choir that Gary conducts on this kind of music because it's his, it's his milieu, it's his mm-hmm. genre. However, um, I think um, in, in philosophically for what Gary and I have been talking about at least over the last couple of months is we want a choir with the versatility to perform a broad range of music at a very, very high level. Uh, and that has its own other kind of market than the specialty choirs. Um, it, 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 it sets us apart from the Tudor choir. It sets us apart from bird ensemble uh, and makes us not in competition with that vertical market per se. Uh, not that we would be because it mm-hmm. would be a different it would be a different genre. It would be English uh, 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 music of the Walton and, and Elgar and, and, and von Williams era. but. But I think that having a broader, a, a broader focus allows us to market differently at different times of the year to different kinds of people. Well, I, I come from specialization, of course, because I was so interested in early English music. But of course, then Stutz got us interested in shape note music, which is totally different. But yeah. having done that, it improved the polyphony. Yeah. Um, I love polyphony because I think, uh, you know, it's mostly diatonic. It's incredible for sight singing oh, development yeah. and for rhythmic accuracy and tone quality and so forth. We, we mostly specialized in Renaissance music and 20th century music, which were fairly compatible sound-wise, less mm-hmm. in, much less than any Romantic music, some Baroque. You know, if we were hired to do something, we'd do anything. Yeah. You know, there were yeah, a lot of, right. yeah. lot of us sang, have sung for a lot of film scores and video games, and, and that all had its benefit for just getting the music and doing it. Uh, I think specialization is good. I think it's helpful for the marketing. Um, uh, I think it's helpful for audience retention. People mm-hmm. know what they like because they yeah. have they are exposed and have access to just about whatever they want. Um, so I don't know much else than that. Yeah, I have a couple other points though. Sure, that I want to I want to add to. Sure, one one is what can the that the scholarship uh, of specialization does advance the art form, and it's good for people who have expertise in an area to specialize their choirs and to, because it really helps educate audiences about a particular genre, about a particular era or a particular style of choral music. It's good for edge. It's good for the intellectual quality of our audiences because it creates, it creates um, an expanded knowledge about a particular subject. But important to that is what can the area sustain? Um, you know, tw- 20th and new music, for example, is gets really good, it has a narrow but loyal reading in the Seattle mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see a lot of the same faces at new music concerts, even, you know, different than uh, the same choral or, or instrumental. Yeah. Um, there are some, some really dedicated projects around new music in Seattle. And Seattle can sustain new music really, really well, I think. Um, uh, we, we have it both, you know, with groups like the Esoterics, we have it, with uh, with Julia Ty's group, we I mean there there are a lot of so are there people coming to these things. Is well, that what you mean? Yeah, th- they are. I think that we're doing a better job of marketing and 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 inviting people into into those concerts. I know that Brian Chin's uh, uh, Universal Language Project is doing a really good job of sort of creating that education that that engenders more audiences that are coming in. We're getting more second hearings of new works. Mm-hmm. which I think is really important to new music and to that particular genre. But the, the point being that um, the market has to be able to sustain the, the, the product. Yeah. And, um, uh, I think and how are they being sustained right now? I mean, are you saying that audience and the interest is paying for these concerts of that? No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I wouldn't okay. go that far. In, in some cases it is, but I, I think that there's still a lot of uh, outside funding support that goes into those kinds of things. Grant support, New Music USA. So it's grant support as opposed to individual support. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so there's policy support yeah. for new music, yeah. uh-huh. Okay. which I think is completely different. Yeah. I, I think it's valid, but it's completely yeah. different than a popular appeal. 
Right. Not that one's better than the other, but yeah. it just is what it, it is. It is, yeah. Right. They're different animals, absolutely. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's a good but point. But there are audiences showing up for these concerts. I mean, I mean, which is good. If you, if you go to an esoterics concert on a Friday night at St. Stephen's, there's a lot of people there to hear music that is that is very different than you would hear at, um, you know. Now, do you think those are, those? Uh, how many of those people do you think are friends and family? Oh, I, I mean, it, it's in, in great part, but I do know that they're doing a lot to cultivate their audience, too, and that there are there are people who are new music fans that are regular supporters and regular and audience. How many singers in that group? It varies project to project. It can it can go from 24 to 48, depending on so the project. pretty sizable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you got 10 singers out there, friends and family, and mom's <laughs> going to get a, tired yeah, yeah, of coming. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess my earlier question about specializing or not, you know, I, I'm purely thinking for the benefit of, not the community, but for Emerald Ensemble. Like, yeah. Because there, for me, there's something, this is going to sound terrible, but amateur about not specializing. Because that's sort of what everybody else does. You know what I mean? And, and I think like having, especially when you're selling something, I think it's a more tangible idea to sell, say, 20th century Baltic choral so music than... Let's look at the other major yeah. professional choral ensembles. Let's look at Conspirare, Phoenix Chorale, Kansas City Chorale, Seraphic Fire, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all groups that do a broad range of choral music. Yeah. They record a broad range of choral music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some of them have expertise in specific areas. I mean, Charles just won another Grammy for, for, his, um, for his combined performance between Phoenix and, uh, and Kansas City for the Rock Vespers. Um, right. But, you know, they've also, they've also had Grammy nods for, for music that's very different than that. Uh, uh, Patrick Quigley uh, in uh, Miami with Seraphic, Choir, uh, Seraphic Fire is, is doing a broad, uh, a broad range of, of, of genres and also women winning Grammys. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and making money while they're doing it. I mean, these are financially very, very yeah, successful Yeah, I think uh, those are good examples. I, I guess my follow-up question would, you know, would be, you know, are there other forces at work? I think, like, you come in with a lot of support. If your money situation is, is not an issue, then I think you can do whatever you want. Yeah, Sorry. I think it's Arizona, Miami, all the hot states. They're going to yeah. have <laughs> money support from... Older people who have retired there and yeah. are forking it over for these concerts, and we are not that city. Yeah, just that I, is I, a that is a reality. But I will yeah. I will tell you that when I go to their concerts, they are packed. I bet they are. They are. But I mean, which is great. Yeah, but there's a reason why. The, it, you know, Craig Hella Johnson does these mashup arrangements where he takes two popular pieces and and he moves them together. The, and, and 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 sometimes you know. I, I, I think critically about those because they don't seem like very good choral music. They seem like popular music to me. Mm-hmm. But the point is, they're packing these concerts because the programming is is is, is broad repertoire and it attracts mm-hmm. a wide variety of people. So we we don't just see the aficionados in. We see people that love to hear choral music in in it in in, in one form or another. And will come because there is something on the program, maybe not everything on the program, but something on the program they want to hear. When these programs are marketed very well, yeah, they, yeah. they have an umbrella title that is appealing and accessible. I mean, that's how you have to do it if you're going to program broadly. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have your sort of uh, centerpiece or your theme that transcends you know, the musical genre that it may be that may be slightly esoteric yeah to something something cultural some landmark some architecture some point in history yeah. that is going to uh, connect with people and social justice programming is becoming even more prevalent hmm. by all means you know go forward with that i was just uh, it was interesting to hear more about your decision making to not um, yeah. to not focus but i mean that sound that put it that way it sounds lame and, but and i will i will put a caveat on that we may change our mind in a year uh-huh I mean, we reserve the right to completely pivot and and do something specific. Well, sure, you got to get a year yeah. out there. This is our experiment. I mean, this is our experiment year. I mean, this yeah. is our, this is our chance to see if we like what we're doing and what we don't like, we change. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think of Gary, Walton expert. Yep. Walton we all do. choir. Yeah. The twelve. The twelve. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Gary, you happen. better be listening. It the twelve, Gary. Happen. The twelve, yeah. Gary. So good luck with with all that Thanks. and. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, looking looking forward to see how that unfolds. We are too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. One of the other things on here is where to perform. 
Does venue we matter? Just talking about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> While we poured more wine. Yeah. Venue totally matters. Yep. Because if it if you select a venue that people are comfortable with, that they're used to going to, that hosts other events, that's a known quantity, you have a greater uh, likelihood of drawing people who might not otherwise come. Yeah. Uh, all those things, absolutely. I think the other factor for, at least for us in our developing year, is the, the ratio of revenue capability to likelihood to fill that to the actual cost of the venue. I mean, there are some very popular venues that are very expensive uh, for which seating is actually fairly limited. Bastyr comes to mind. It's an expensive venue. It's great to perform in, but the capacity is only, what, about 250 people, and that limits the revenue that you can bring in to pay for a space that's really relatively expensive. Right. Whereas a space like St. Mark's, you can fit 450, 500, even 600 people in if you need to, uh -huh. So your your revenue to cost ratio is a little bit is a little bit more likely to be reasonable. On the other hand, when you're in a space like St. Mark's and you have 50 people in the audience as opposed to 250 or 300 people, it's a very different feel acoustically and emotionally. And so those are all things that that I balance when I'm making a venue decision. There's also the sort of residency option. Do you try and form a relationship with a with a venue, with an institution like a church, so that you can perform all your concerts there for consistency, for maybe a discounted price, you know, all of those yeah. things. Uh, uh, the Seattle Choral Company, I'm the assistant director of the Seattle Choral Company, and we're, we have residency status at St. Mark's Cathedral, along with Bird Ensemble and a couple of other, yeah. uh, uh, a couple of other uh, choirs. Uh, they like to have choirs as their resident ensembles. I Pro see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah they do. Uh, and it, it is a huge economic advantage. And, you know, the other point that Doug made was it's home base. It's home base for a lot of people. It's home base for a lot of audiences. And so there's, uh, you know, uh, when you're consistently at the same place, your audiences come back. Well, people see something presented at St. Mark's, and so they feel it has St. Mark's stamp of approval. Yeah. It's going to meet a certain standard. Yeah. So they trust that they will get their money's worth, that yeah. their time is well spent. It's also a premier venue. I think having a well-known venue uh, helps, and also a venue with parking, I think, makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's actually a, a big factor in the Coral Festival every two uh -huh. years, is the fact that St. Mark's has ample parking, yeah. and we can fit a lot of people there when you're hosting, you know, mm -hmm. 34 choirs. One of the other things I've been thinking about venue is we do a lot of this music in churches, and a part of me wonders if we're missing out on the mainstream concert-going scene. Those people that go to, say, Benaroya instead, are those people, if we started taking this music there, do you think that we would be able to get some of that share of audience that we're not currently tapping into? Boy, we went through that uh -huh. and, uh, you know, in discussions with Peter Phillips of the Talus Scholars a lot, who's very pro-concert hall, and I'm really pro-concert hall, too. Yeah. A lot of concert halls, the acoustic is a little bit difficult in some yeah. of them. Not yeah, that, I, I mean, uh, I think that the voices can should be able to create what they need, but like the recital hall at Benaroya is tough. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's tough. Nordstrom is tough. It's tough yeah. to sing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, Town hall is tough too. Mm -hmm. In a way, I mean, in one way, it's easy to sing because you get that bounce off the wall for the singer. Yeah. But you have to think about what it sounds like to everyone sitting out there in different places. Yeah. I love the concert hall idea, and I think there's a lot to the concert-going audience outside of a you know, church-going concert audience. Right. There, there is the option of non-traditional spaces, uh, lobbies of buildings, lobbies of, uh, you know, lo lobbies of buildings here downtown, uh, hotel spaces that might, might provide an appropriate acoustic that are marble or that have less carpet or... Uh, so moving into secular spaces that aren't concert halls is also an option. Warehouse spaces that have been converted, I think there's one in, 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 uh, on Capitol Hill that's, that's used for that. Mm -hmm. But probably still considered kind of fringe, yeah, don't you yeah, think? Definitely, definitely. Uh, mm -hmm. Velocity, for example, is a, is a place I know that's getting a lot more use, not necessarily as a dance, uh, as mm -hmm. a, as a, mm -hmm. as a dance venue. Uh, so there, there, there is the option of non-traditional space also. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just hard to know which ones will work musically. And then you run into the problem that Doug talked about. These are kind of off the beaten path for our audiences, right? for our yeah. typical audiences. And we're going to sell tickets to 
attend? I mean, how do you monetize something, you know, performing in a hotel lobby? I mean, right. How do you sell tickets to that? Well, or, or, or you know. Hat, a, well, hat know, tip. Or, 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 yeah, <laughs> or, you know, or in the lobby of City Hall or in the lobby of one of the big buildings downtown or or going into an auditorium space that might be in a, in a, in a corporation like uh, the, the, the theater in Redmond uh, that is, uh, or Microsoft, or one of the one of the company's auditoriums. There is a new space. Uh, Chris Jenkins, uh, uh, U- recent UW grad, helped develop called. Uh, it's in the Soma Towers. It's the Resonance, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, interesting space for performance. I mean, it's getting a lot of use right now. It's in uh-huh. Redmond, um, uh, but again, you're talking about a max seating of 150 people. Yeah. So it really changes the way you monetize. Your event. Yeah, I think my my thinking towards singing concert halls wasn't really was sort of ignoring the acoustic effects of that because that you know that's why we perform in churches, but right. in, in in for the purpose of getting a new audience, I don't you know, I'm not sure, you know, audiences will trek over to these sort of obscure you know concert holly other places. I mean, I guess I'm talking about specifically Benaroya Hall or, or like other famous well known places that other, you know, the people that go to the symphony go to. Um, which is Benaroya. Which is Benaroya. Town Hall is is a you know maybe a secondary one. Uh huh. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. And um, I don't know. I guess I just wonder that. Wonder if people would hear you know choral sacred music in these places. It might um, depend how you program it. I yeah. mean, it always makes me think of Peter's thought that the mass setting is akin to the string quartet. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. the Renaissance five movement mass setting is akin to a string quartet right. performed by eight or ten people. Yeah. Will an audience buy that here? I'm not sure. Maybe. The religious aspect of the stuff we do, sometimes I wonder if, if Seattle as a whole doesn't like that. Well, not all choral music is religious. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, sorry, I'm just speaking mostly yeah, in the yeah, domains that we've operated yeah, I mean, in. And they've I, been. I mean, I come from, from, from genres where... Music is deliberately secularized, and uh, and it's intentional, and so there's always this sort of disjunct when you bring deliberately secularized music or deliberately non-Western uh, European art music kinds of of tradition into very very Christian or very very uh, Judeo-Christian spaces, mm-hmm. and and there's sort of a there's sort of a disjunct there sometimes. I mean, it's great for the it's great for the acu- the acoustic is good. And it treats the music well, but um, it's sort of socially disjunct. Mm-hmm. Do you think an audience cares? Yes, actually, I do. Uh, it's been an observation that has been made to me from mm-hmm. our audiences in the past and from the choir mm-hmm. itself. Why are we always singing in churches, or why are we why are we hearing this kind of music uh, in, in in a church? Well, for lack of better explanation, because it's acoustically convenient, and it's it, it, it's convenient for us to perform in these venues, and it's cheap, and it's cheap. Part of the convenience, absolutely. Okay. Americans think so much. <laughs> yeah. I think far less. <laughs> if we can just get to this next question, just generally, how do we get an organization to be financially stable enough to pay their singers regularly? What sort of things do you focus on? I think that's I think that's probably what everyone wants to know. How do you actually do the the business side of stuff? Because that that obviously is a is a important part of making a professional group. Well, <laughs> I think you need to, you know, you need to minimize your administration. Mm-hmm. You need to, ex- well, first of all, you need to execute well. Yeah. You need to sing well. You need to focus on the product. Because word of mouth is important. Even for a big organization like Pacific Northwest Ballet, word of mouth is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Even with the huge financial goals we have for each performance. Um, you need to execute well, you need to market yourselves well, and you got to balance self-promotion versus obvious over the top. Mm-hmm. You need to wisely solicit funding mm-hmm. from key people. Those are my things. Good. Scott, do you have anything to add to that? Well, those are all really good. I think that, uh, really good points. I think that over the long haul, uh, good audience engagement is good donor development, uh, making sure that you have a relationship with your audience. You know who's sitting in your audience, uh, identifying which one of those audience members are willing to be financial contributors, and to what level of generosity are they are they willing to uh, you know to contribute. Creating enthusiastic donors uh, is uh, uh, 
part of the work. Part of the work. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, keeping them uh, is important too. And then for some organizations, you know, knowing, uh, you know, grant funding is just getting so thin for, op you know, things like operating expenses just don't get funded very often anymore. It's more of a project-based kind of yeah. uh, uh, opportunity with, with grants. So there's, there's, there's very little of that sort of opportunity anymore. I think that, uh, you know, Doug made one point that I'll reiterate, and that's quality brings them back. It's got to be a good product. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to do well what we say we're going to do, and um, uh, or they're, they're simply not going to be those enthusiastic audience members and enthusiastic donors. Yeah, in my experience also, um, I mean, we've tried a little bit to get grants, but we, I mean, the time spent trying to get them which is the money we you get stopped. Back. Yeah. yeah. There are it's there are certain grants that are just prohibitively complex to apply for given I mean Doug was talking about streamlining your administrative costs. If you're paying somebody hourly or if you're paying a staff member to write grants and it takes half their month to write that grant and you get a, a sum of money that is not even equivalent to the salary you paid the person, which yeah. has happened to me personally. Yeah, sure it has. It's very difficult. It's frustrating, and yeah. it looks good on your on your on your profile. Yeah, but it's not really good for business. There are other st more streamlined processes, and there are other grant organizations for which a letter of application is all that's required and a budget. Uh, uh, I think first of all, I think New Music USA is doing it right. They are really really doing it right. Uh, and I, I'm, 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 I have no problem applying with New Music USA or Copeland Foundation, and then there are other ones that are just so prohibitive that people have stopped applying. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know of anybody that's gotten an NEA grant or even bothered applying for one lately. It's funny. It's so easy for people who aren't involved in this, myself included. Some be, oh, just get a grant for this. Just, yeah, just get. It doesn't work like that these days. No. No. And and um, you need to go to a funder and say, would yeah. you pay for this? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's good. It's good to hear from people that have actually done done that a lot, and because uh, we haven't, we've tried a little bit and gotten nothing. So, um, that's good to know. Before we wrap up, I mean, we did have one question that came came through. Um, oh really? Oh wow! Yeah, cool. someone actually. Um, Tweeted a question. Okay, should choral organizations systemically seek feedback from singers and audience and use that information to inform policy and programming decisions? I think I wrote that on your sheet. It yeah. is. It is. It's right here. Yeah. I think so because I think it's interesting. Yeah. I may not follow it or not, but it's interesting to know. When we did surveys, it was just interesting to hear. Yeah. What people liked. Yeah, I did. I did one survey for a Christmas concert, and I th and I posted actually on my blog the results from that. And um, I was trying to find an excuse to stop doing those damn postcards because they are just expensive. Yeah, they and, are. and 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 I quit. I, 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 you just straight stop. Um, <laughs> all I know is that like a third of them did get postcards. A third, about a, I think about a third of them received one. Whether or not that sort of made them come or whatever is is another question, but. So there's still a third of them who are getting, so it's like, okay, well, maybe. But one thing that was interesting is that um, a lot of them also go to other choral concerts. Yeah. And um, that a lot of them had been brought there word of mouth, like by other people that they've, mm -hmm. that either by a singer or people that they know that, that like the group already. Um, yeah, it is sort of interesting to see what. We just, uh, the Seattle Choral Company, which is the, uh, one of my other ensembles, uh, we just did a, uh, survey at Christmas time and w specifically we're trying to find out about our marketing efforts we're trying to find out what's working and what's not working and and of course you know if in the scatter plot it's all equal I mean we're getting you know between radio coverage and between uh, and and even even the radio coverage we're, we're doing less of now because we're finding that it's just not mm. as as cost-effective mm -hmm. for us it's very expensive airtime is expensive yeah uh, so, you know, we're leaning more now toward uh, uh, our social media efforts and our, our vertical, you know, our sort of vertical email kind of things and integrating our vertical email in segmented ways. We're segmenting the, the, the materials that we're sending out. For example, I know who I have email addresses for that I don't have snail mail addresses for and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I market to those people differently. I will send postcards to the people for whom I only have an email or a snail mail address. Right. And I will send an email, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a 
an email blast to those that I do for. So I'm able to pare my costs down a little bit by segmenting uh, uh, my marketing efforts. But the survey was really instrumental in proving that those efforts were, were reasonable. And this is one's for Doug. Um, do you, so I remember Tutor Choir, when it was most active, we did two concerts per weekend. And um, did you, over the time, feel like the audience was about the same size? Or do you feel like it had grown up to a certain point and then stopped? Oh, it's hard to remember. We were doing concerts that we do like a Saturday night in Seattle and a Sunday afternoon at St. Thomas in Medina. Which I really like because it sounds nice yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Also, it's the second time you're doing it, so it would go well. And it was a Sunday afternoon, so it somehow seemed more relaxed. Yeah. I uh, can't quite remember. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm also... I mean, financially, things were fine. We were yeah. making money. Yeah. Y'all made you know, good money. I, I, I just, somehow, yeah. <laughs> I know. That, and you stopped doing postcards at one point, and people were still coming, uh, which is great. Because uh, I think that email and social media were... You know, so such a part of everyday life. Uh-huh. So we started sending a monthly kind of newsletter and then an announcement per concert. Yeah, and that is so free. We have an active Facebook page. Uh huh. That was about it. One thing um, I remembered my question or comment rather is, and I think the trickiest part about like like a, a community choir audience is parsing out the people that are friends and family. Yeah. Because I don't think they're 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 the sort of meaningful um, segment of people you want information we, we, we from. We actually we actually verified that data point. Uh, okay. Survey. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was I was pretty deliberate about finding out that data, yeah. data point. Yeah. Good. Sorry. Just wanted to throw that was the thing I wanted to throw out there. But. I, but yeah. I want I want to come back to this question because it says and use that information to inform policy <clears> and then <throat> this is my favorite part of the question programming decisions. Oh. Uh. I don't no. know about the, the I do idea want. of using a survey to change programming decisions. I don't know. I might. <laughs> I totally might. I don't know. If they want to hear a certain thing and I like the music, I might do it. It's like, yeah. fine. Make yeah. me happy. Yeah. Sorry. I'm yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's fair. It's absolutely fair. Especially if they're, you know, they're willing to, you know, make an enthusiastic gift to support the performance of that particular Especially piece. if you've taken the, the survey at Christmas. It's a completely yeah. different, different animal. Yeah. Christmas is a totally different animal yeah. in the States and yeah. most Western countries. Yeah. So... But sure, hey. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to point out that there's one, I think there's one thing that we haven't covered, and it's the importance of recordings. Oh, okay. Uh, that I think that every professional level ensemble has uh, either should is doing recordings or should be doing recordings, and 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 I think that they're they're not they're not a money maker, but I think that they're important for the advocacy of the group. They're important to uh, show a record of the expertise of the group. Um, and it gets out. It gets out the word on, on a broader market. It makes the, it makes the choir more accessible on a less regional and more super regional yeah. regional level. You can mm-hmm. you can you can get yourself out nationwide where where you otherwise couldn't with uh, with just being a performer. No, I I mean I agree. <laughs> you who produces yeah, I mean, CDs. Yeah, I mean how many of you, how many of our CDs have you you mastered and and, 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 and I, mean, I don't know. I've, I've, quite a few. Quite yeah. a few. My only thing is, when we've talked about this a lot, about what are the singers in these groups looking to get out of it? And uh-huh. I just think of an average tutor choir rehearsal. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when people show up, I was really fortunate. Everyone shows up early to tutor choir. They just do, because uh-huh. it's uh-huh. just, it's a gig, it's a job. They're there early, they're ready to roll. Yeah. And, um, but they're not there really. They're not there for the social aspect. The singer's not there to get something personally out of it. They're there to offer something. Right. And I think that's a massive difference yes. between an amateur choir and a professional choir. Yes. I would say in an amateur choir, it's a little bit like paying for that college course or that mm-hmm. weekly experience. I paid. I want to get something from it. Yeah. Instead. You're being paid to give your skill. Yeah. And I, I feel like we had that, but we also had collegiality. I mean, yeah. I heard a lot of things. You know, I hear a lot through the grapevine because yeah. we were like the group that was paying for yeah. so long. And, you know, right. People should do it because they love it. They yeah. shouldn't do it because they're getting paid. Well, that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> it is bullshit. Because, sorry, the director of that group's getting a friggin' salary off the dues those people paid. So yeah. Yeah. those are not related. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in professional 
professional compensation for professional Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yeah. And the people show up and they do their job. We also <laughs> got along. I mean, it was really good. We had a really good time. Yeah. The rehearsals are great. Oh, yeah. But there's that mutual mutual respect. Everyone knows why they're there. We're right. there to prepare this music for performance, to do justice to the music. And, yeah. And... That, to me, is kind of, that is a very important aspect of why yeah. uh, one would organize their organization that way, organize their group that way, and why you would pay people. It's a whole set of expectations that come. But it's got to, you know, the singers have to take that on. You know, it is a job for them to be there. And oh, they come yeah. And they do it. They may not feel great. Maybe they had a bad day. But all that has to go away. You open up your score and you 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 do your job. And guess what? That singer that's that's there because they love it or whatever. Will when they get a paid opportunity, they will do that instead, and then you'll be, you know, out of luck there. Well, I I, I think that people that have chosen to be professional musicians are already passionate about their about their craft, mm -hmm. and they're going to bring that passion and that skill, uh, as 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 we uh, say in the Emerald Ensemble. Music of passion and skill, choral music of passion and skill. They're going to bring that 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 passion and that skill because this is this is the life we've chosen. I mean, this is the profession that we've chosen to, to, to be in, or at least to to be able to sing at a professional level and and, yeah. and to bring that particular gift. So I think that the that, that what Doug is talking about is uh, is absolutely valid, uh, and I think that there is a certain magic that happens when you put professional musicians in a room together. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is sort of like a, just sort of a higher level consciousness about creating the art, uh, creating the music that, that, that comes out of that. And I think, I think that rather than a social enjoyment, I think there's an intellectual musical enjoyment that comes out of that. I, go, I, I like to sing at a professional level because I feel so uh, uh, heartened and fulfilled by mm. the interaction that mm. comes from singing mm. at that level. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very validating <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways. Sure. And I realize that's a selfish statement, but, but I think it's true for a lot of the people that, that do choose to sing professionals. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the music deserves it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Good. Um, anything else we want to throw in here before we... I know you've got to hit your... Uh, drill. Active shooter training. Act yeah. <laughs> Active yes, shooter training that. at yeah. PNB. Yeah, that's a sad reality. <laughs> well, um, if there's nothing else, I think um, you, know, you realize that you can sort of just go on and on and easily come up with a many hour long episode about <laughs> the ins and outs and the other stuff along with with uh, with with this. And uh, anyways, thanks thanks. Both of you for Absolutely. being here. Thank really you, Mark. It. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Thanks, Mark. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to hear more about upcoming episodes or topics, I hope you'll follow me on Facebook. Just search for This Choir Nerd. Also, you can do the same for Twitter. I'll try to stay active on both those sites. And uh, feel free to drop me a line or a comment about what we should talk about next. So, until next time. <laughs>